For God so loved the world, wrote John, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, of course, people trip up on this word only begotten, because in the Old Testament, when you read the genealogies, you read of so-and-so begetting so-and-so, begetting so-and-so. But the word, I'm going to talk about the Greek too much, but the English translation of the Greek word only begotten does not imply something or someone that is created. The Greek word used in the New Testament for only begotten refers rather to the uniqueness of a relationship. It's really saying that the relationship between the Son and the Father is one of its kind, is the only one of its kind. So for example, in Hebrews 11, 17, Isaac is referred to as Abraham's only begotten son. Well, we know Abraham had quite a lot of sons, in fact. He had more than one son. But Isaac is referred to as his only begotten son. And why? Because his, Isaac's relationship with Abraham was unique. It was one of a kind. He was the only one that he had with Sarah. And he was the only son of the covenant promise. So the emphasis in the word begotten is on the son to the father and the father to the son relationship being the only one of its kind. It's a unique relationship. It cannot be repeated. And although God has many sons and daughters, and we're here today, we are adopted sons and daughters, aren't we? The Lord Jesus Christ is the only Son of God. He's not adopted. He is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Of course, the Lord in his condescension uses human language for, to enable us to understand something of the Trinity. But of course, if we press the words too far, it all breaks down. Um, the terms Father and Son describe the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. But they, even those words have their limits. And if we press them too far, then we, we go into the error of the Jehovah's Witnesses who teach that Jesus was literally produced or created by the Father. But we would believe in Reformed faith and in the Orthodox faith generally. And in something called the eternal generation of the Son. Christ is eternal. He had no beginning. And that uh, is uniquely the Son of the Father. And so here I am talking in terms of Christ before the Incarnation, before the Gospels. Then Jesus was and is the Son of God. But in view of the fact that, and in view of the event of the Incarnation, he was the only begotten Son of God in a different sense, in an additional sense, according to his human nature. Because by an act, a supernatural act of the Holy Spirit, Mary was with child. We read of this in Luke 1, 
verse 35. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come, shall upon thee, come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So the Son of God is the Son of God in his pre-incarnate estate, but is the Son of God also by dint of being born of Mary and of being conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so the amazing message of Galatians 4 verses 4 and 5 is that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who was eternally in the bosom of the Father, through incarnation, became a member of the human race. Can you, it blows our minds when we really think of it, isn't it? That Christ assumed a human nature, a physical body, and a human soul. And this was affected by a supernatural conception and a virgin birth, which we'll go on to see. So the question was asked by the church quite early on. If the Son of God was the Son of God eternally, and if this Son of God becomes a human being with a human nature, with a human body, with a human soul, is Christ now divided into two persons? Is he now a man and a God? And the answer of the church was no, as we'll come on to see. So the crisis that the church has come to explaining and understanding that this mystery is to say that the one divine person, the second person of the Trinity, assumed or took on human nature and therefore now has both deity, God, a God nature, and also a human nature. Jesus has a divine and a human nature united in one person. He is not two persons. He's one person with two natures. Without confusion, fully God and fully man. And therefore, the closest we can come to understanding, the closest that we can come to using the right language is to say that the Lord Jesus is the God-man, uniquely the God-man. In the year 451 AD, the Council of Chalcedon formulated into theological language the Church's teaching on the person of Christ. Remember, we, we never say, we should never say, if you can help it, we must never say the persons of Christ, only one person with human and a divine nature. And this is what they set out. And it's never really been improved upon. The council said the person of Christ is declared to be acknowledged in two natures. Inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of the natures being in no wise taken away by the union but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence 
not parted or divided into two persons. And I don't expect you to take on all that. But the key thing is that the council said, no, the answer is that the Lord Jesus is one person, not two persons. One person with two natures, and those natures are not confused. And that's very important for salvation. The miracle of miracles is at the heart of our text today. God sent forth his Son. And I want just to make some very quick remarks on these verses, bearing in mind the importance of understanding that theological background which I've just gone through. First of all, staying with this phrase, God sent forth his Son, these verses show us something of the plan of redemption. God sent forth his Son. I've already said that the meaning here is that the Son was sent by the Father for a purpose, for a mission. And Jesus always spoke in that way, didn't he? He spoke as having come from God. He said that this is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent, talking of himself. Um, again in John 8, 29, he said, And he that sent me is with me. And again in chapter 8 of John, verse 42, he says, For I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. You see, the Lord Jesus had this consciousness the whole time of being as one sent, as one sent forth. Jesus was sent on the basis of a plan. This was the plan of God for the salvation of sinners, the gospel. The plan didn't evolve. It didn't, um, the Lord Jesus didn't think on his feet when people started to reject him, as some of the dispensationists teach, and then turn to the Gentiles because the Jews didn't listen. No, it was all part of God's plan. He came on the basis of God's eternal plan. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians chapter 3 and 11. He talks of the eternal purpose, the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ our Lord. Again, talking about the church, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 that according as he hath chosen, chosen us in him, before the foundation of the world. God had a plan from all eternity and the Son was sent to implement the Father's will. Jesus said, For I come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which he hath, which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That was the Lord Jesus Christ's plan and purpose. And so we have here plainly given, presented the mission which Jesus came to complete. I should lose nothing, of which the Father has given me. 
See, that's significant because in the mystery of the eternal plan of God, this is a remarkable thing. Whilst God the Father sends the Son on this mission to save sinners, in the same breath, in the same movement, the Father promises a reward to the Son for the completion of this mission. And what is that reward? It is the saving and the keeping of those sinners that he was sent to save. And so, in an amazing way, the mission is the reward, or at least the completion of the mission, is the reward of Christ. And Jesus spoke of this often, not often, but he spoke of it. He says in John 17, 6, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. He speaks of men which the Father has given him. Thine they were, and thou gavest them to me. Now, I cannot say I can explain this, but there's a, God gives these people, this, these sinners, to the Son. Jesus refers to those who were given to him by the Father again. In John 17, verse 9, I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. Praying for these ones again in the same chapter, he says, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. In fact, the scriptures teach that as a reward for his accomplished work, the Lord Jesus would have a seed so numerous that it would that no man could number the multitude of the number. That a kingdom would be given that would include representatives from every kindred, language, tribe and nation. All the ends of the earth, wrote the psalmist, shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. That's from the Messianic Psalm. 22. The plan of redemption is an amazing thing to friends. And we'll spend our whole lifetime trying to delve into its uh, mysteries. But these verses in Galatians also talk about the time of redemption. If you notice, it says, but when, in verse 4 of Galatians 4, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son. Now this phrase, fullness of time, the pleroma, the fullness of the chronos, the time, is almost exclusively um, written about in commentaries as the, as the right time, as the appropriate time. And it's common always to refer to how the coming of the Lord Jesus coincided with the uh, Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, and the Roman road system, and how the Jews had finally gotten over idolatry, and how even the heathens were getting rather fed up with their gods. And it's often presented that the fullness of the time means it was, it was an appropriate time, it was a pragmatically a useful time. And that's true, but I don't think that's the first meaning of these words. 
Paul has a very precise and definite meaning here. When the fullness of time was come. Paul is saying that this present dispensation of time was predetermined to have a goal. That this was the predetermined period of time when Messiah would come. Put more simply in basic language, the fullness of time equals Messiah's time. The time for the Messiah. And as soon as you say that, you immediately know that the time now has come, which has now come, was the subject of long ages and much prophecy. And we've been trying to trace some of that in our Bible studies on Tuesdays. Paul talks of it, he says, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he had purposed in himself. And this is the phrase here. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, those which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. You see, Paul talks about the dispensation of the fullness of times. It's the same phrase, the same meaning. What he's saying is that the fullness of time implies an orderly, progressive unrolling of history towards a fixed end and purpose. The unfolding of God's plan. It was always God's plan to send forth his son, but many ages had passed. There's disagreement among Bible-believing scholars and preachers about the how to interpret the genealogies. But even if you say they're full of genealogies, there are many thousands of years have passed between the first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, which we've been studying on Tuesdays, the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. Thousands of years have passed, many thousands, until we see God sending forth his Son into the world. But all that progressed, evolved, not randomly, not haphazardly, but according to God's unfolding purpose and plan. And we reach this point like a, I don't know, I was going to say, like sand coming through, what do they call, do they call those sand timers, where the sand empties and the bottom of it is full. The fullness of the time has come. And Messiah comes according to God's precious plan and purpose. Dear friends, God knows what his plan is, he unfolds it. We trace it through the Old Testament, we see the promise of the seed of the woman being fulfilled. We see the prophecy that there will be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman all the time in the Old Testament. 
Cain's hatred and murder of Abel was Satan's enmity against Christ. But we see God protecting the seed all the way through. It comes, the seed of the woman comes through Seth, through the line of Noah. It narrows and channels through, the, through Noah's son Shem. It narrows even more. The seed comes through Abraham, through Isaac, not Ishmael. It goes through Jacob, not Esau. It comes out of one of Jacob's sons. The seed comes through Judah. And throughout all this time, Satan's hatred is shown. He tries to destroy the seed of the promise. He persecutes Abel. He persecutes the line of Seth before the flood. He persecutes Abraham's line and the people of Israel. But time after time, what happens? Satan loses, dear friends, doesn't he? He loses in the flood. Satan loses at the Tower of Babel. He loses at the Exodus. He loses in the conquest of Canaan. And finally, God reveals that the seed of a woman will come through the line of David. And we read how God preserves David's line while Satan tries to destroy it. He almost did. When we get to the Gospels, the line of David was in a parlous state. There a handful of them left. But in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And there remained a small godly remnant too long for the Messiah. And suddenly, in the fullness of time, Gabriel comes to Mary, who was of David's genealogy, and announces to Mary that she will have a son. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom shall be no end. The angel comes to Mary, not to Joseph, because the promise is not of the seed of man. The promise in Genesis 3.15 is that the Messiah would come from the seed of the woman. He will be virgin born. And the fullness of time came. Many prophecies of Messiah were made in the Old Testament. God used many messengers and many methods to try and get the message across. But finally we read in Hebrews that in these last days God has spoken to us by his Son whom he hath appointed heir of all things by whom also he made the worlds. The prophets had glimpses. They tried to inquire into the timing of all of this. Peter says that the prophets inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in him did signify when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. But you know, this is an important thing to underline. Even the prophets didn't. They couldn't, they couldn't get to the bottom of God's timetable. You see, God has a diary, God has a calendar. 
God's time is always the right time. We are in time, but God is outside of time. Yet God's plan of redemption unfolds in real human time, but not according to our agenda, but according to His. There was a time for Israel to be delivered from Egypt. It says in Acts 7, when the time of the promise drew nigh, the people which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. There was a time for Jesus to die. Jesus said, and John says that they sought to take Jesus, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. There was a time for the cross. You see, man cannot fast track, neither delay the fullness of time, the plan of God. And there's a great temptation, unfortunately, even among, in the church of Jesus Christ, to try and do God's work for him. To be impatient, to take matters into our own hands. And even the best, even the best uh, of us in our history have done this. We see this tendency in, in Acts 1 with the apostles. They were gathered there waiting for the Holy Spirit and when they therefore were come together, the scripture says, they asked of him saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father put in his own power. You see, there's always this tendency to want to know the times and the seasons, to bring in the kingdom of God. Through politics, through, cult, through influence of culture, through implementing some kind of biblical blueprint for society. That was the spirit of the Apostles' question. Is, is the kingdom of Israel, is the, the political kingdom of Israel going to be ushered in now? And we see this same spirit today in the uh, Christian reconstruction and theonomy movement, which I want to talk about more one time. And this is from a reformed, post-millennial perspective, borrowing very heavily on the Puritans, who, uh, some of them at least erroneously, tried to bring in a theocracy. Under Oliver Cromwell, the Puritans tried to bring in a theocracy in England. Puritan settlers in New England tried to, they, they, they considered in part their attitude was that it was like the conquest of Canaan and they ended up fighting against Indians and, and calling and referring to the destruction of the Canaanites. It was all false. We cannot bring in the kingdom of God through political power. Many today through a misunderstanding of the role of Israel in the field of redemption, are trying to bring in what is kept in God's diary for the future and trying to bring it in now. Reformed people do it. Pentecostals and Charismatics do it. Through Dominion theology, which is quite similar, but also through trying to bring in promises that are, that are real promises, but they're not for now. The promise that there will be no sickness. 
that there will be no death, that there will be no common curse. That's a real promise, but that's not for now. And they try to bring it in, they try to fast track it, saying, well, no one should be ill, it's a sin to be ill, and everyone must be well. You see, it's a misunderstanding, he's trying to bring in that. He's trying to interfere in God's diary. That's what it is. Now, things will unfold, dear friends, according to God's plan, when the fullness of time comes. God has a timetable, he's not in time. He uses time, but he, with him, a thousand years is at one day. There's a time for heaven and earth to pass away. But even the Lord Jesus, in his estate of humiliation, said, Of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. The Father holds the key of all unknown. There are many things we don't know about God's plan. But all that we need to know this morning, if we're outside of Christ, is that there's one thing the scripture says about this time, is that today is the day of salvation. This is the season where salvation is available to sinners. And that God longs that all should come to repentance. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. And that really is the important thing to take away so far from all that I have said, is that to be your saviour you need to come to Christ and his door is now open. It will not always be open. The day of grace has an end date. We don't have the day, God holds the day. But now is the day of grace. We're in the covenant of grace. And the Lord Jesus is not willing that any should perish. Of all that were given to him is his reward for completing the Father's will. Thirdly, and quickly, we, look, we see in these verses in Galatians, we see the miracle of redemption. Seeing the plan, we've seen the time. Now we see the miracle of redemption. For it says, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. The Apostle John put it this way. He said, and the word was made flesh. John teaches that the pre-existent son of God takes on human nature, human flesh and blood in a miracle. We need to contend today, dear friends, for not only the deity of Christ, we need to contend also for his real humanity. The denial of Christ's humanity, according to the Apostle John, was the spirit of Antichrist. God, you see, sent forth his Son, made of a woman, with a physical body and a reasonable soul. Hebrews, in Hebrews, the writer says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also, like Christ, took on part of the same, 
The Lord Jesus took on flesh and blood. We have to be very precise. It's a shame that we need to because of all the error around us. We need to be precise in how we speak of Jesus. John is very precise. He says the word, the logos, became flesh. It does not mean that the eternal second person of the Trinity ceases to be infinite when he assumes human nature. Rather, the Logos, the Son, took on, takes on human nature from the substance of his mother. He didn't, like the early Plymouth Brethren taught, bring his body with him from heaven. It was a real body from a real mother. He really did become one of us, a real man, one person with two natures in perfect union, the God-man. Charles Wesley put it this way, I think he could have improved it, as I've gone to say, but he, wrote, he, he put this mystery in these words in one of his hymns. He said, let earth and heaven combine, angels and men agree to praise in songs divine the, the incarnate deity. Our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. I personally would have said, the Son of God contracted to a span because God the Father and the Holy Spirit, of course, did not take on flesh. Only the Lord Jesus, only the second person of the Trinity. But we'll forgive Charles Wesley. It's like a cat to a king, me saying that. The miracle of redemption comes through not an ordinary conception. You see, we talk about the virgin birth. There was nothing miraculous about the birth. It was an ordinary birth. The miracle was the conception. Because the Lord Jesus was conceived in the womb without a man by the operation of the Holy Spirit. The creative work of the Glory Spirit who we read of in the beginning of Genesis hovering, brooding over the waters like in a bird-like way fashioning and creating creating order from chaos. He does a similar work in the womb of Mary and filled with light of glory from heaven. Her womb conceives in some way we can never understand the Son of God. That's the miracle. The conception. Mary was told by Gabriel that she would have a son calling Jesus. How? I've never known a man. I just, this is a passing comment, but when we talk about these intimate things, the Bible has a very discreet way of talking about this, and I think we should do the same talks about, I've not known a man. Let's use that language when we come to intimate things. I've not known a man, so therefore, how, how can I be with child? You see, it was a miracle. And, and Gabriel says, the Holy Ghost shall come upon you, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And in a miracle, 
a way which we, I'm not even going to attempt to understand. The Holy Spirit preserves the human nature of Christ from the pollution of sin, and Jesus is born sinless. Our Lord was Mary's son of the seed of David, not of the will of Joseph or any man. God was the father of Jesus, and Mary was his real mother. Sometimes forget that. Jesus had a real birth mother. And that's why Mary should be spoken of by us reformed Protestant types, not as someone, some person off the street. We should speak of her with respect and with care. She is blessed among women, but she's not to be prayed to. She's not to be worshipped. But we, we probably go to the other extreme. She's to be reverenced and spoken of in the highest terms. She was the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul further adds that God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. We can't spend time on this, but what an amazing thing this is. The one who gave the law is now under the law. When we think how puny we are and how great he is, it's like having a little child in your home and you set rules for it. You, mustn't, you must go to bed on a certain time. You're not allowed in that room. You're not allowed to ruffle that cushion. You're not to, to eat this. And the, and the grown-up, the father, say, says, well, I'm going to subject myself to the laws that I've laid down to this puny little child of mine. And the Lord Jesus, the lawgiver, puts himself, or the Father asked the Son to put himself under the law. He was made under the law. He was a Jewish child of Jewish parents. He was circumcised. Went to the temple. He learned the law off by heart. He was found in the temple talking to the teachers at the age of 12. He said, I've not come to abolish the law. Not one joint or tittle of it will, will, will fall. I've come, he says, to fulfill the law. And it was vital that as the seed of the woman, Jesus kept the law. That he kept every part of it. He fulfilled every part of it. You see, if Jesus had sinned just once, even if it was just a passing thought, and we, and we think of all the sins we do every day, if Jesus had just had one bad thought, when he was on the cross, he would not be dying for our sins. He would be dying for his. But because he kept the whole rule all of the time, he was qualified to be the substitute for lawbreakers. He, fit, he completed, fulfilled the law. And he nailed everything. All the ordinances and all the rules that were against us, he nailed it to the cross. And we therefore can be free if we come to him of the law, the law's thunder and the law's curse. Jesus was spotless. He was the Holy One. The apostles said, prayed against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, and the people were gathered together.
Even the demons called Jesus the Holy One of God. Peter said he did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. And then lastly we read, not only of the miracle of redemption, we read of the purpose of the plan of redemption. Verse 5, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And we won't spend time very much on this. But why did God send forth his son? That he might redeem those who were under the law. To redeem is a word here that refers to the buying of a slave in the market. And by nature, because of our sin, because we broke God's law, you and I were born as slaves to Satan and to sin. But because of God's great love and mercy towards sinners, he has redeemed his people from the slave market. He bought us, he purchased us, purchased us. he paid the price to redeem us. And when you and I become Christians, we enter his family not as slaves, but as sons. Adopted sons. No longer in bondage. No longer under the elements of the world. But as free men, free women, free boys and girls. Free not to live for ourselves, Paul says, but to live unto him, the Lord Jesus. Free to live unto righteousness. Not following the law of Moses, or not following Moses, but following Christ, who is the mediator of a new and better covenant, fulfilling the law of Christ, which subsumes and improves and elevates even the law of Moses. So you and I follow not Moses, but we follow Christ. He is our head. He is our goal. He is the one before our eyes. This, dear friends, is the message of Christmas. You are likely to hear this in many places, I'm afraid. But this is God's precious gospel. God sent forth his Son in the fullness of time. And this precious gospel of salvation is open to everyone until the day of grace is closed. And therefore my appeal really to you today, if you don't know this Christ, this Messiah, come to him and be saved. Cry out to him for salvation before the day of grace or the day of your death. For then there is no salvation possible. The door is shut. Dear friends, come to him while you may be saved. Amen. Amen.